Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom's weight management programs are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies. My name is Daniel Port. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Pitcherless Podcast Network. We're here every single Friday to break down the stories that tell the myths and legends of baseball and cover the players who help make us love this incredible game. And I'm so glad you're here with us this week. I'm sorry uh, this episode came out so late. This week, I want to warn you up front, this episode is moments where I will talk about some pretty sensitive issues, including instance of rape and later domestic violence. I won't get into a a lot of detail, but it does come up as a subject, and I know this isn't uh, a subject matter for everyone, so please listen with caution, and I'll point out when we get to that that part in the story, And, and just listen with care for yourself and take care of yourself. If these are things that could bother you or could harm you in any way. I originally I originally wasn't going to do this person this week. I know last episode I talked about talking about Tim Hudson or someone along those lines who had maybe a Tim Lincecum who had like a short peak. But then faded out due to injury or other reasons. And I realized a little bit that I was pulling my punches. If I was looking to talk about a young phenom who flamed out early but for a while was among the greatest pitchers ever... No one fits the bill like Dwight Gooden. I, I think I was worried I wasn't going to tell the story correctly, uh, th- that I wouldn't uh, be harsh enough on some of the issues involved and wouldn't be understanding enough on others. And I hope that isn't the case. If it is, if I wasn't going to be willing to tell those kind of stories, uh, I shouldn't be doing the podcast at all because baseball history is littered with these sort of stories, unfortunately. And I can't really be shy about them. We're going to come across them. You have to talk about the good and the bad. And we're going to do a little bit of both, actually, today. I hope I do all right. And part of the reason this came out late is because I I re-recorded this a few times. And I really took the extra time to try and see that I did get it right in the end. And then I I tried to give it the care and understanding that the story deserves. And and frankly, also to, to give proper context and to... Make sure that I felt like I was being true to all of the folks who listen to this podcast and all the folks who like baseball and love baseball. Thank you for your patience and understanding, and uh, we'll give it the best shot that we can. Now, like uh, Vita Blue, but amplified, really, Doc Gooden is both a terrific story of a young phenom who took the world by storm uh, and, and is also a cautionary tale of excess, abhorrent behavior, and how addiction can rob you of everything, really. Doc pitched for 16 seasons, primarily for the Mets, but also for the Yankees, Cleveland, Houston, and Tampa Bay. He broke into the majors at just 19 years old, touting in a blazing 
unhittable 98 mile an hour fastball and threw an equally unhittable curveball that was so good as far as nicknames go it was promoted from uncle charlie to lord charles which is one of the best nicknames for a pitch ever he took the baseball world by storm and for a time in the 80s literally there was no one in baseball bigger than dwight gooden or as we may know him as doc gooden like blue as well but again amplified through his peak Gooden's excellence was marred by drugs and alcohol, by legal troubles, and some genuinely disturbing incidences involving women. He's a complicated and difficult baseball story that will pull you in many directions and make you feel a lot of different things. And he that's how he was to a lot of fans of the time period as well. He was important to a lot of fans, and at the same time left many feeling betrayed as well. While doing research for this story, all you came across were interviews and stories of people talking about Doc Gooden as this person who made them love baseball, but then at times left them felt betrayed, or at times left them felt with mixed feelings about the game, about fandom, and it's a complicated story. Now, in the big picture, across 16 seasons, he was a four-time All-Star who won Rookie of the Year with a Cy Young Award and was at least part of three World Series winning teams. His 53 war is 95th all-time amongst pitchers and actually was ahead of Hall of Famers Jim Catt, Sandy Koufax, and Bob Lemon. His 2,800 innings pitched is 175th all-time and his 2,293 strikeouts is 58th all-time with a career 351 uh, ERA and a 1.26 whip to go along with 194 wins and a 111 ERA+. plus. He even won a silver slugger at one point and he won the pitching triple crown He's genuinely considered one of the greatest young pitchers to ever play the game, and many credit him with possibly having the greatest pitching season ever in 1985. We'll get there. For about half a decade, there was possibly no better pitcher, I mean, no bigger pitcher even, than Doc Gooden. I wanted to tell his story, and I think it's an important one to tell, but before I do so, let's take a quick break. Let's hunker down with some water, get hydrated, and uh, get settled in for the story of Doc Gooden. When it comes to weight management, we tend to put our focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat, and that's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain, and they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Try Noom today and see the results for yourself. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. So Dwight, or Dr. K, or just Doc eventually, was born in 1964 to Dan Gooden and Ella May Gooden. According to Doc in an interview he gave with the Athletics Tim Graham, I'll uh, quote this interview throughout the story, later in his life, he said that baseball was a huge part of his childhood right away. 
and it provided a very easy way for him to bond with his father, who was a baseball coach at the semi-pro level. And as he tells the story, he told his dad at age five or six that he wanted to be a pro baseball player. And his dad responded like any good coach would by explaining the hard work involved and building a structure for him to succeed and grow in the game. He hits his stride as a teenager, making the team at Hillsborough High in Tampa as a sophomore. And shockingly, his high school pitching staff was stacked, as it included three future major leaguers, Floyd Yeomans, Vance Lovelace, which is ranks up there for one of the greatest baseball names ever, and Albert Everett. So Gooden eventually started off pitching out of the bullpen. I mean, with a stacked uh, rotation like that, how, that makes some sense. But eventually he made the rotation and excelled to the level that he started to catch the attention of all the scouts that were coming to see those other pitchers I, I mentioned. And pretty quickly he started getting invitations to big league camps. Some of these included the New York Mets, who would end up drafting him in 1982. That year he's assigned to low A ball for the Mets, but little did anyone know he wouldn't spend very long in the minors. He excels in 11 starts that year, throwing 78.2 innings with a 2.75 ERA and a 1.17 whip, along with 84 strikeouts and just 28 walks. In 1983, he's bumped up to A-ball, and he's even better, throwing 191 innings with a 19-4 record, a 2.50 ERA, and a 1.22 whip. He strikes out 300 hitters, which, by the way, again, in just 191 innings, to go along with 112 walks. In fact, he's so good that at 18 years old, he's called up to AAA for their playoffs. He performs well enough there that the Mets feel confident enough in the now 19-year-old that in 1984, they went the unconventional route and called Goodwin up to the majors to start the season with the team straight from A-ball. Now, you'd think as someone who could barely be considered an adult, they would struggle against the best of the best, but oh, you would have been so wrong. He's absolutely incredible at tossing 218 innings with a 17-9 and record to go along with a 2.60 ERA while leading the league in strikeouts with 276, which, for the record, was the most since Herb Score's rookie record of 245, as well as leading the league in whip with a 1.07 mark, and as well leading the league in FIP with a 1.69 mark, and he also led the league in hits per nine, home runs per nine, and Ks per nine. He made his first All-Star game and leaves his mark on the game, striking out the side. He runs away with the Rookie of the Year voting that year while finishing second in Cy Young voting where he is absolutely robbed. Yes, Rick Sutcliffe went 16-1, I understand. And Rick had a 2.69 ERA and a 1.07 whip, very close to, to Gooden's numbers. But he threw 68 fewer innings than Gooden and was worth 1.6 fewer war than Gooden's and a leading 5.5 mark. Now, given how short Gooden's peak would be eventually be, and this is obviously disregarding some of the things we'll get into later, I really feel like from a statistical standpoint, not winning that year really costs Gooden in terms of his legacy. His 17 wins that year was the most a 19-year-old had ever put up since Wally Bunker won 19 games in 1964. And over his final nine starts, he went 8-1 and one with 105 strikeouts in 76 innings, which is 9 earned runs and 13 walks. Again, that's over 100, what, over 9 starts or so? In fact, his 0.86 FIP over that time period indicated he even pitched better than his insane 1.07 ERA showed over that time period. Just crazy numbers. 
It's just one of the best rookie seasons ever, uh, especially, again, when you consider how young Gooden was at the time. Now, the Mets don't make the postseason, but after Daryl Strawberry won the Rookie of the Year award in 1983, and with Gooden emerging and doing the same in 1984, it was clear that the future was bright for the Mets. Now, if 1984 was a coming out party for Gooden, 1985 was the year that cemented his place in history. He amassed a 24-4 record across 276.2 innings, leading the league in both wins and innings, while also leading the league with a 1.53 ERA. Yes, you heard that right. 1.53 ERA across 276.2 innings, as well as in complete games with 16, and he led the league in strikeouts with 268. He led the league in ERA plus with an astonishing 229 mark. That means he was 129% better than the average pitcher that year. And he also led the league in FIP with a 2.13 mark. Those numbers earned him the National League Triple Crown, which has, by the way, in both leagues, has only been accomplished by 18 pitchers winning the Triple Crown. And at one point in the season, he threw a stretch of seven games in a row where every game was at least eight innings. He had a six-game stretch at the end of the season as well, where five of the six games he threw were complete games, and over that time period, he gave up just three earned runs. He had a stretch of 31 consecutive scoreless innings in there at one point as well. It's just an incredible season. He runs away with the Cy Young Award that year, obviously, and no one comes even close to his 12.2 pitching war mark that year. And I know I've said this a lot, and it's hard because when you look at any really elite year in a vacuum, it feels this way, but by many measures, this probably is actually the greatest pitching season in history. It, it, it has been virtually untouched throughout history. Now, of the 19 seasons with more war by a pitcher, only three of them happened after 1899, and none of them were later than 1923. That's how good this season was. He also became a member of the Black Aces after winning 20 games that season, making him really one of only 15 black players to win 20 games in a season as a pitcher. One of which, by the way, if you remember, was Vita Blue, who we talked about two weeks ago. In fact, these two seasons actually sound a heck of a lot like Blue's first two seasons in the league, who also started as a teenager as well. And in fact, sadly, part of the reason we talked about Gooden in conjunction with Vita Blue is because they have almost an identical career paths for both better and for worse. Now, one difference, though, is that Blue played for the Athletics in the 70s, while Gooden was pitching in the Big Apple in the 80s for the Mets. So, Blue was certainly a phenom in his time. He was written up in Time Magazine. He was talked about all over the country. But it pales in comparison to the hype Gooden got. Doc Gooden got a 100-foot-tall mural made for him at, what, 20 years old? In Times Square. Not just somewhere in the country. Hanging in Times Square. I believe right over by uh, Penn Station. That's crazy. He was national news. He was in the biggest, brightest city in America. And really for a while in the 1980s, Doc Gooden was the center of the baseball world. It rotated around him. It's just, it's hard to really summarize just how much attention Gooden got at the time. Again, all at, what, 20 years old? And that's the thing about this trio of pitchers that I've talked about the last few weeks. Despite Blue, Hershiser, Gooden all having uh, very similar careers and career paths, 
The average baseball fan in their respective time periods, they might have heard of Blue. He was certainly very popular and caught a lot of national attention. And they probably knew Hershiser in passing because of the scoreless innings record. He pitched for the Dodgers, but Doc Gooden was a household name. And not to invoke like the Michael Jordan comparison, because it wasn't quite, in, in retrospect, wasn't quite that big. But he was a household name. People who didn't watch baseball knew who Doc Gooden was. And that it, it's really just for that time period in a pre-sports center era is just, it's hard to really comprehend just how big he was. Now, he's named to the All-Star Game again that year as well. And he finishes fourth in MVP voting behind Willie McGee, Dave Parker, and Pedro Guerrero, despite putting up five war more than any of those players. Heck, if you combine Dave Parker's 4.7 war with any of the other two players in that group, Gooden still has more war that season. And that's how good he was compared to his peers. And that's for MVP voting, by the way, not just Cy Young. Now, unfortunately, despite this incredible season from Gooden, the Mets as a team finished second in the NL East, and they missed the playoffs. But really, that may seem disappointing. All that really does is set the stage for the team to find true greatness in 1986. Now, of course, Gooden couldn't possibly follow up that 1985 season. That was impossible. I mean, you just you can't do that twice. But he's still absolutely fantastic in 1986. There was 250 innings with a 2.84 ERA and 200 strikeouts with just 80 walks and a 1.11 whip. He throws 12 complete games while compiling a 17-6 record. He's named the starter of the All-Star Game, surpassing Vita Blue as the youngest player to start the All-Star Game. He finishes 7th in the Cy Young voting that year, and he certainly shouldn't have won it that year, because while he was excellent with 4.5 war, that wasn't anywhere close to Mike Scott's 8.4 war. But with that in mind, also, 7th was a little harsh as he was Fourth amongst pitchers in war that year, and he had an argument, honestly, for finishing as high as second or third, honestly. The Mets excel right along with him. They win 108 games and finish first in the NL East. Now, this is before the wild card era, so we jump straight into the NLCS. And in that NLCS, Gooden excels against the Astros. And for the record, I always forget that they once were in the National League too, so if that threw you off, it, it certainly throws me off every single time. But... He makes two starts in the series, throwing 17 innings, giving up just two earned runs, and striking out nine hitters. Ultimately, the Mets emerged triumphant, heading to their first World Series since 1973. Now, this is a very famous World Series in 1986 for reasons that don't include Gooden, as this is the very famous Bill Buckner World Series, as the Mets beat the Red Sox primarily on an error by the uh, sort of criminally underrated Bill Buckner against the Red Sox, and this wins them their first World Series since 1969. Now, Good unfortunately struggles in the series, getting lit up in two starts that he makes, as he seemingly ran out of gas, giving up eight earned runs and nine innings pitched in the series. Luckily, his struggles didn't hurt the team's chances too much, as they returned home to New York as heroes. Now, later, after his playing years were long over, Gooden would say in interviews, that he found it hard to participate in the celebrations because of his poor performance in the season, that it soured the champagne, and that he felt almost on the outside looking in. And when he misses the World Series parade the following week, that's really the first inkling, at least publicly, that something is wrong in the world of Dwight Gooden. Gooden will later confess his struggles in the diamond in that World Series haunted him, 
and he spent the day of the parade actually with his drug dealer and would miss the parade. This wasn't, unfortunately, the end of Gooden's troubles in 1986. In December that year, Gooden was arrested in Tampa after an altercation with several police officers in which reports stated that an officer was kicked in the head while Anna was kneed in the groin and while Gooden was beaten with nightsticks and flashlights. The official reports say that no one was seriously injured, but the Mets would later say through their spokesman Jay Horwitz that Dwight was worried his left wrist might have been broken and that he had, and I quote, he had bruises on his head, a bloodshot eye, and cuts on his arm. Gooden stated at the time, I don't know what I did. They never told me what they stopped me for. Now, Gooden was charged with battery on a police officer and violently resisting arrest, disorderly conduct, and careless driving. And in many ways, I think this incident carries a lot more nuance than it was viewed with at the time. The cops claimed at the time that Gooden was driving recklessly. But Gooden's lawyer at the time stated that if you look through the records and whatnot, traffic made driving recklessly impossible. And it's worth noting that Gooden drove a very recognizable silver Mercedes with a license plate that said Doc on it. A very recognizable car. And I think if you view this incident through a modern lens, where we know so much more about the police and the treatment of black men in this country, that I truly view this with a grain of salt. And with a different perspective. I'm not saying I know what went down. I'm not making any accusations. But I am skeptical. And you just have to look at it and say. I've seen this too many times. And a year later. The official ruling by the way. Made by the Tampa City Attorney. Blaming Gooden for the incident. Was part of what sparked two major riots in Tampa. Along with the shooting of a 23 year old African American man. Named Melvin Eugene Hare. The whole situation was a mess, and that reaction to some degree likely speaks to the relations between the Tampa police and the African-American community. So, like I said, this, this changes how I view this incident and how I weigh it when I talk about Dwight Gooden. Unfortunately, we'll talk later about things that, that, that I don't view that way, but this one I do. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't the end of the troubles for Gooden either, uh, as... During the 1987 spring training, he would test positive for cocaine. On April 1st of that year, he would enter a rehab center to avoid being suspended and wouldn't return to baseball until June 5th. All in all, he's good, but not great that season, at least by his standards. Throwing 179.2 innings with a 3.21 ERA and a one, uh, 148 strikeouts, he finishes the season with a 15-7 record with 7 complete games and a 1.20 whip. He doesn't make the All-Star game that, that year, but he does finish 5th in the Cy Young voting. That's uh, probably better than he should have finished uh, looking at it, given the only amassed 3.7 war in that season. Despite winning 92 games, the Mets finished 2nd in the NL East and missed the playoffs that year as well. Now, 1988 sees a rebound for good, and perhaps more importantly, a quiet season in terms of off-the-field issues, which he desperately needed. He goes 18-9 across 248.1 innings with a 3.19 ERA and 175 strikeouts with just 57 walks. Now, I mentioned before that Gooden was famous for his blazing fastball with incredible movement. But Gooden felt that it had been slowing down for years, and you could see it in these rapidly dropping strikeout numbers. And this meant he became more and more reliant on Lord Charles to get him by, to draw weak contact and get him through innings. 
He is named to the All-Star game that year thanks to a 3.04 first-half ERA. And the Mets make the playoffs again after being eliminated the year before uh, and not making the playoffs. In the NLCS, they face off against the Dodgers. Now, Gooden makes two starts, including one against last week's subject, Oral Hershiser. Small world. He pitches well in the series, throwing 18.1 innings, giving up just six earned runs and striking out 20 hitters in the series. But the Mets lose to the Dodgers. Now, this would be the last time Gooden would see the playoffs for the next decade. 1989 would be a rough one for Gooden, as a shoulder injury would limit him to just 17 starts. He's very good in those starts, throwing 118.1 innings with a 2.89 ERA, with 101 strikeouts and a 1.18 whip with a 9-4 record. 1990 was Gooden's first truly rough year, as he played more of a workhorse pitcher role, throwing 232 innings, but struggled to the tune of a 3.83 ERA, with a 1.29 whip and 223 strikeouts. It wasn't all bad, though, because honestly, there's some evidence that Gooden was much better that year than it looks on the surface. His 2.44 FIP led the league and indicates that the Mets perhaps struggled on defense a little bit and that Gooden probably got some bad luck, too, in there. The Mets were 7th in errors as a team and 5th worst as a team in fielding percentage, so there might be some truth there as well. Now... Before I move on to the next year, we're here in 1990, I I, I, want, I mentioned earlier that there was a content warning here, and we have reached uh, that point. If you might be bothered or disturbed by talking about assaulting women and rape, you may want to skip forward a few minutes. Unfortunately, despite two relatively quiet years without any controversy, uh, that would come to an end in 1991. When along with Daryl Boston and Vince Coleman, Gooden was accused of raping a woman whose real name we do not know, but was referred to publicly as Cindy Powell. Now, it's impossible to talk about Gooden's legacy without talking about this incident. And for the larger part, everyone focused on Gooden's drug abuse issues. The media has glossed over this uh, or attempted to forget that it ever happened. And I don't want to do that. I want to make sure... It matters when we have this discussion. I think if you don't acknowledge it, these things can have a way of haunting the game. And you have to have a discussion about it. If you want the game to be a welcoming place for for women and for people who may have gone through these experiences, you have to have this discussion. You have to make clear it's not okay. And it has to be part of these players' legacies when they when this happens. So I want to talk about it and I don't want to gloss over it. Now, Gooden and, Gooden and Coleman deny it ever happened. And it's tough to know what to do with the situation. I'm a firm believer in believing women. And in this situation, I do. And there's a couple reasons why, but the biggest reason is it doesn't help that the Mets of that era, they had a very well-known reputation for behavior towards women that well, it tends to support the accusation, frankly. Uh, according to the book, The Bad Guys Won by Jeff Perlman, Gooden and teammate Daryl Strawberry once exposed their genitals to a flight attendant, and they got out of control and they drank a lot, which again, likely supports Powell's stories. Powell had said they had been drinking that night as well, and often appeared drunk uh, even when they first approached her. Even Strawberry himself conf- confessed that in a flight once after they won the pennant in 1986, that they groped flight attendants while drinking heavily and doing drugs and were getting into all kinds of bowdy behavior, even with their wives and whatnot on the plane. It's just, obviously, this isn't like 
proof. But it's hard to see these instances happen and not lend some credence to the accusations. Now, I don't want to get into the specifics of what happened that night. If you want to Google it, it's a pretty easy Google find. I used a, I believe, a New York Times article on the situation from the time period that goes into it. And I believe there's a really great Slate article by, uh, I'm looking up the name because I want to make sure I quote the right person. But there's a really great Slate article by Daniel Engber that talks about the, the situation and really breaks it all down. And I'm quoting it pretty heavily here that goes through what happened that night. So if you want to want to uh, want more information on that, that's where I would look. But I'm not going to get into too many of the specifics of what happened. But all in all, this doesn't exactly paint uh, a picture of players who wouldn't do this or put themselves in this situation. Now, I also want to make clear, I understand they were cleared of these allegations. And I, I get this. But again, much like Gooden's previous run-in with the law, we know a lot more now about how these kind of cases go for women and it's almost impossible to get conviction in these kind of cases and uh, i know there's a lot of people for whom gooden was the reason they fell in love with baseball i, I know that matters but it, it can't be ignored it, you know it, it is our perception changed knowing several alcohol and uh cocaine addiction you know situation were involved in the, these incidents probably sure but that doesn't matter to the woman involved, and it can't matter to us. Not if, not if baseball is going to be an inclusive place that it is safe for women and for women to be involved in the discussions of the sport. We can't. It can't matter to us. You can't. We we go throughout history, and you can't talk about a lot of the best players of baseball without bringing up their off-field issues. And we certainly aren't going to skirt them on the podcast. You just can't. You just can't avoid it, unfortunately. And. There's a lot of parts about Dwight Gooden that are great. He had one of the best pitching seasons ever, but but there but the, this is this stains it, and this is a big part of of his career and the story of Dwight Gooden. And you just can't you can't avoid it, unfortunately. Now, I will talk about the other years of Gooden's career in this episode. I'm moving on from here, and I will attempt to not let this and my disdain for the situation taint how I talk about them. But again, you have to talk about this. And really, unfortunately, it won't be the final ill deed or incident in Gooden's troubled story. Now, moving past spring training, Gooden has a pretty solid year, throwing 190 innings with 150 strikeouts and a 3.60 ERA and a 1.27 whip. He pitched better than that, uh, though, as indicated by his 3.0 whip. He wins 13 games and isn't named to the All-Star game, and the Mets struggle and finish well out of first place. Now, 1992 is more of the same, and in fact is Gooden's first year of his career with a losing record. That's how bad the Mets are, as he ends up with a 10-13 record with a 3.670 RA and a 1.30 whip with 206 innings pitched and 145 strikeouts. Now, you can pretty much hit Control-C, Control-V on his 1993 season, and on the Mets as well. And really, the biggest thing that was known about the Mets for this period was that they were expensive, that they stunk, and that they were out of control. Now, 1994 brought on the strike-shortened season, and the season was an absolute disaster for Gooden. He throws just 41.1 innings with a 6.39 ERA before testing positive once again for cocaine, and is suspended for 60 games. Two years later, Gooden would confess to the New York Daily News 
that his wife, basically, I believe it was the day after the suspension went down, his wife would walk in on him during his suspension with a gun to his head and contemplating suicide. And he would talk extensively about how depression drove his drug addiction, especially later in his life. And yeah, obviously we, we have to consider that. If we're going to consider the, the bad, we have to we have to take that into consideration as well. And this carries over as his suspension would eventually actually carry over into the 1995 season. He ends up suspended for the entire year. And during the season, his mural in Times Square was removed and I believe replaced with a, with a mural of Charles Oakley at the time. Now, in 1996, he's a free agent for the first time looking for a new team and he doesn't leave New York, actually. He, he flips leagues and signs with the New York Yankees. He pitches abysmally in the beginning of the season and is sent down to AAA to figure things out. He returns with a new windup and on May 14th, he threw the first no-hitter in Yankee history since Don Larson's perfect game in 1956. To dive into a little bit, he throws 134 pitches in the outing. As the story goes on the day of the game, Doc's father, Dan, was having heart surgery. And we talked earlier about how important Doc's father was to him. And pretty much everybody in his life was telling him he shouldn't pitch that day. He should be with his dad. And Doc was convinced. He really felt strongly that pitching that day was what his dad would want. And he felt the only way to be true to his father was to pitch that day. And so he goes out and he throws the greatest game of his career. Regardless of how you feel about the other things in Gooden's career. And you should feel uh, obviously strongly about them. In a vacuum, that's the kind of storybook stuff that makes sports special. You can't write it that well. His dad is on the operating table. Gooden is convinced that's what he wants. And he throws the greatest game of his career. It's it, it just, it, it, it's genuinely the stuff of myth and legends. It's hard, obviously, with everything to call it a true redemptive moment. And I wouldn't do that. But all things considered, for a lot of suffering good and fans, it, it had to be nice to have a moment to enjoy him again. Now, he ends up finishing the season with a 5.01 ERA, over 170.2 innings pitched, with 126 strikeouts and a 1.51 whip and a 11-7 record. Overall, the season was a rough one with one huge shining bright spot right there in the middle. Now, 1997 was much better for Gooden as he throws just 106.1 innings with 66 strikeouts and a 4.91 ERA and a 1.59 whip while going 9-5. He pitches well enough, though, to make the postseason roster and makes a start in the ALDS against Cleveland versus, lo and behold, his old friend Oral Hershiser. Look who's come back around. He makes one start and pitches pretty well, throwing 5.2 innings, giving up one earned run and striking out five. He ends up with a no decision in the game, and in the end, Cleveland wins the series. In an ironic twist in 1998, though, Cleveland lets Hershiser go in free agency and actually replaces him with Gooden. He has a good season in the Four City, throwing 134 innings with 83 strikeouts, a 3.76 ERA, and a 1.39 whip to go along with an 8-6 record. Cleveland makes the playoffs that year, and Doc makes one start. In this in the ALDS, but lasts just 0.1 innings, giving up two earned runs and walking two before he's pulled. Despite that, Cleveland wins the series anyways, and he makes another start in the ALCS against the Yankees, throwing 4.2 innings, giving up three earned runs. And now, Cleveland does lose that series, unfortunately, and is eliminated from the playoffs. 
Gooden would make uh, one one last season in Cleveland, but he is ineffective in 1999. And at this point, Oxlade begins to publicly talk about his struggles with alcohol and cocaine addiction. In 2000, he pitches for the Astros, the Devil Rays, and Yankees, largely struggling before trying again in 2001 with the Yankees, where he is cut in spring training. At this point, Gooden chooses to retire. Now, first he takes a job at the Yankees' front office to help them negotiate a contract with his nephew, Gary Sheffield, in 2004. He, he worked as the vice president of community relations for the Newark Bears, that's a minor league team, in 2009, but didn't stay in that role for very long and was actually at the final celebration for Shea Stadium in 2008 and was there for the reopening of City Field after its construction. Now, Unfortunately, his legal troubles didn't end after retirement, nor did his struggles with his demons. In 2002, he was arrested for drunk driving with an open container and driving with a suspended license. And he was arrested in 2003 for driving with a suspended license as well. In 2005, and this is one that truly bothers me, he was arrested in Tampa for punching his girlfriend after she threw a telephone at his head. Which, it's just, it's simply unforgivable, no matter which way you shake it. You can try and justify it, but that she threw a phone at him. I believe the, the, some state that the phone actually hit him in the head. But, come on. You can extricate yourself from that situation. There's there's no excuse for domestic violence in that situation. And that when you're the... the you just can't do it. It's just, there's no other way around it. And, and even just talking about it makes me just frustrated and, and, and angry that someone do that. To someone who they're supposed to love. And just, I, I just got this is going to weigh in heavily. And I, 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 I try to understand it. Because there are places where there's probably drugs and alcohol involved in this situation too. And that does get factored in. But uh, now in later that year, he's actually charged with driving away from a traffic stop. Where he'd been pulled over and he, he tried to run away. In 2006, he was arrested for violating probation after relapsing with cocaine. And this time he chooses prison over probation. He hoped that it would get him right. I believe his quote is basically saying, if prison isn't going to scare me into uh, into getting straight, I, I don't know what will. And he's released from prison after seven months. He was arrested again in 2010 after being found to be under the influence of a controlled substance, eventually being charged with DWI with a child passenger. And then he manages to stay out of trouble until being arrested again in 2019, again for cocaine possession. Now, before we dive into the rest of it, I want to make clear when it comes to the drugs and drug addiction. As I said with uh, Vita Blue weeks ago, I, I try to be more understanding about addiction and, and athletes struggling with addiction. And some folks aren't understanding about that. I, I try to be. Addiction is a chronic disease. And it's one that has no easy solutions and has no cure. It's not a moral failing to me. Obviously, it, it has a huge impact on those around you. Uh, and I apologize, obviously, if there's someone who's had their lives impacted by someone who has dealt with addiction issues or deals with addiction issues. I hope I'm speaking about it in a way that's not offensive because I don't mean it to be. What I mean to say is that I, I, I understand that it is a struggle. And it's a struggle we're all not built to overcome and I, I try to look at it when I talk about athletes or other people, the way I would deal with if they had bipolar disorder or, or any other mental disease or really anything that, that 
it takes away a lot of our agency. Just like with Blue, as I said, I legal troubles will come into play a little bit as we do rankings and talk about the Hall of Fame and things like that. But not as strongly as you would expect. At least the drug-related legal problems aren't going to factor in. It's just something that I, I, I want to have a nuanced discussion and thoughts about when it comes to drug addiction. And especially in the 80s when it was rampant throughout baseball. There are people who consider that the cocaine era of baseball. That's how rampant cocaine was in baseball. And it just wasn't a good situation for someone who's dealing with addiction issues. And so I, I try not to hold that against him, if that makes sense. Now, with that being said, before we get into the Hall of Fame issue and, and ranking and all that, uh, let's actually take our last break here real quick. And I'll be right back to ask our usual sort of Hall of Fame question. And then finally, to rank Dwight Doc Gooden here. Welcome back. Is Doc a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher? On the stat level, sure. His numbers are nearly identical to Oral Hershiser's, and while he doesn't have Hershiser's scoreless record or playoff excellence, he does have possibly the greatest single season ever by a pitcher to his name. He's also won a triple crown. He's got no hitter to his name. He has being one of the most dominant pitchers of the 80s while being a member of the Black Aces. So just on the numbers basis, yeah. If I say Hershiser's in and Blue is in, then Doc is in too, right? And from a numbers perspective, that would be true. But unfortunately, from my perspective, the answer is no. Doc Gooden is not a Hall of Famer. And that's because of the character clause. And I know there are a lot of mixed feelings about the character clause. But if we're going to hold players like Roger Clemens or Kurt Schilling accountable for the character clause, whether it's Clemens's relationship with the younger women or Kurt Schilling and basically being racist and bigoted, if we're going to hold them accountable for violations of the character clause and others, you have to do the same for Doc Good. Uh, you just, you have to do it. And listen, you know, come for me if you will. But rape accusations and domestic violence arrests, they're, they're just deal breakers for me. I, I don't, I don't completely define Gooden by those actions. And, and, and I hope that I've done a good job of trying to not, to not let those instances completely characterize how I tell this story. But, but I can't forgive it like I did the drug use. I, I can't understand it like I did the drug use. Now, for that reason, uh, Doc Gooden simply isn't Hall of Fame material. And you can't have him in the Hall of Fame and say you expect baseball history to be welcoming to female fans. And frankly, eventually, in my opinion, welcoming to female players. Because I do believe that we will one day have uh, female players in Major League Baseball. And then in the Hall of Fame. It's it's just that simple for me. You, you can't put him there and have that be a place of equality for for women. So that's a, a bit of a short, easier answer in that sense. But now to the question of where to rank him on the list. Let's step back and let's actually revisit the list for a second as we do every single episode. So we have uh, now... Uh, 69 players nice on our on our list and the top 15 are Sadaharo O at number one Satchel Page at number two Josh Gibson at number three Mickey Mantle at number four Greg Maddox at number five Mike Trout at number six Ichiro Suzuki at number seven George Brett at number eight Adrian Beltre at number nine Shohei Otani at number 10 Clayton Kershaw at number 11 
Edgar Martinez at number 12. Sandy Koufax at number 13. Tony Gwen at number 14. Hank Greenberg at number 15. Jumping down the list, we've got Kenny Lofton at number 20. At number 25, we have David Ortiz. At number 30, we have Ryan Sandberg. At number 35, we have Home Run Baker. At number 40, we have Vita Blue from two weeks ago. At number 45, we have Jamie Moyer. At number 50, we have Ryan Braun. At number 55, we have Jose Bautista. At number 60, we have Kenny Rogers. At number 65, we have Jim Abbott. And then to round things up, at 66, we have Mike Sweeney. At 67, we have Herb Score. And at number 68, we have Mark Pryor. And number 69 is James Paxton. Now, normally we'd be talking about Gooden near Hirschheiser or, or, or Vita Blue. Trying to see if, which amongst that trio, how high would, would Gooden rank. Heck, when you throw in what he met culturally in New York and as a black pitcher, I could have easily have seen making an argument for him actually passing up Roberto Alomar at number 38. But then if his actions and his mistakes affect his Hall of Fame rankings, then they do in the list too. I can't list him over Tony Stone or uh, Dottie Schrader at 58, who were essentially in many ways shatters of the glass ceilings of baseball for women uh, and were pioneers for women in baseball. Again, it goes back to that, you know, how do you make an inclusive place in baseball for women and women players and rank him over that, those two players? I, I think... I, th- I think you can't. Now, with that being said, I do also think his accomplishments do give him some cushion from being like the bottom of the barrel of the list, right? I think if I'm trying to be unbiased about that part, or at least you know, give weight to his accomplishments as a counterbalance to his deeds, I think that gives him some cushion from the bottom of the list. And his story is genuinely important to telling the story of baseball, even if much of it is a cautionary tale, you can't talk about baseball in 1985 without talking about Dwight Gooden. You can't really talk about baseball from like 1984 through 1990 without talking about Dwight Gooden. Is all of it good? No. Is all of it bad either? No. And some of it is about true greatness in the game. That has to be weighed in and I think gives him a little bit of a bump from just making like the last player in the list. Uh, so I think a good spot to look at him is right before another troubled, if not as troubled, pitcher in Kenny Rogers. Now, Rogers has a perfect game and to his name, and they have roughly the same amount of innings thrown and wins. They have the same amount of strikeouts and war. But Rogers was never as dominant as Gooden was at the beginning of his career, nor was he ever as big of a star. Uh, never did he really mean as much to a city as Dwight Gooden meant to New York at his peak but think about this. Kenny Rogers never had a 100-foot-tall mural in Times Square. And that seems like a, a pretty deal-breaker, a big deal-breaker to me. So I think he goes above Kenny Rogers at number 60. Now, does he rank ahead of uh, Cabrian Hayes at number 59? I, I think, if I'm being honest, uh, sometimes with these rankings, you rank a player early on, and then you start filling things in, and suddenly you look back months later, uh, two years later, and you're like, hmm, that's a weird place for that player. And some of it was when we ranked Cabrian Hayes at uh, where we did, where right now I think he says at number 59, is uh, I expected him to continue to grow as a young player. And so a lot of that was projection. And he hasn't really done that. He hasn't really lived up to that projection. I have a feeling that I think Cabrian Hayes needs to be ranking, which 
once we get closer to 100 players listed, I will do a re-ranking episode that is coming soon, don't worry. But I think when we do that ranking, obviously Hayes will get bumped down the list pretty heavily. And so I think Doc slots way ahead of him as well. So with that, I think that's the perfect spot. Because if you go up above him at 58, that's where Dottie Schrader is. Uh, and again, I can't do that. I couldn't put Doc, uh, Doc Gooden ahead of, uh, ahead of her. So I think that just that, that makes uh, Doc Gooden... Uh, number number 59 on the list. That's our episode. And like I said, I appreciate you guys going through this with me, guys and gals. I think it's an important story to tell. I think it's a, a player that we can't, you can't tell the history of baseball without, again, for better and for worse. I hope I did an okay job of telling a nuanced telling of that story. And... If you think there's something I could have done better or something I could clarify, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can reach me at Daniel J. Port or you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies. Both those are on Twitter. And you can always email the podcast at longballlegacies at gmail.com if you want to talk about this or talk about really anything related to the podcast. If you want to suggest players or whatnot. I'm not sure who we're going to talk about next week. I think we're going to try and jump back up to maybe talk about a player somewhere in there that I think could rank in the top 10 or top 20. Kind of stir things up a little bit up there. It's been a while since we've had a player up that high. I'll let you know who we're going to talk about. I'm not sure yet. But until then, folks, again, this is Daniel Port of the Longball Legacies podcast here at the Pitcherless Podcast Network. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your weekend. It sounds like it's going to be a nice one. Enjoy some baseball, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you.